Let's not even pretend this week that there's more than one story to talk about. We've touched on the coronavirus a bunch over the past two months, but this week we're all coronavirus all the time. Yeah, it has been nuts in our newsroom. Normally we might talk about the extra challenge tossed at people seeking to legalize marijuana in the state, or maybe the Cleveland Motorcycle Club landscape after a shooting death. But honestly, coronavirus are exploding this week with all the new cases and all the cancellations. All anybody wants to talk about this week is the virus. And we're going to have a big crowd on this podcast to keep that conversation going. So let's begin. Welcome back to This Week in the CLE, the podcast news breakdown by the reporters and editors at Cleveland.com. I'm Cleveland.com editor Chris Quinn, here with co-host Laura Johnston, who usually sneezes every afternoon and this week is scaring the bejesus out of us. We keep meaning to do a story with an HR representative about why it's not funny to joke that your colleague has the <laughs> coronavirus, but with all the breaking news, we haven't gotten around to it yet. As far as I do know, as far as I know, I do not have the coronavirus. Well, put it this way, I have no symptoms of coronavirus. The thing is, with community spread, none of us really know if we've been exposed or even have it. Maybe that's the scariest thing. Yeah, yeah. I hope you don't have it. We're in a small room. <laughs> Um, and, and just for guidance, we are collaborating with Metro Health uh, this week on putting together an online guide, which will go live Friday, and a print guide in the Plain Dealer with all sorts of advice and thoughts about how to cope with this thing, how to avoid it, and what you should have prepared. So look for that on our website on Friday at cleveland.com slash coronavirus and Sunday in the Plain Dealer. So... Given all the talk about social distancing, this is probably a bad idea, but let's load up our tiny podcast studio with a lot of people. Welcome to the podcast, Emily Bamforth, Mary Kilpatrick, and Jane Cahoon. Hello. Hi. Hello. So all of you have been fully immersed in the biggest story of 2020, the coronavirus formerly called COVID-19. It's been the most eventful week for news of the virus in Northeast Ohio, and we have a ton of angles to discuss. First, it's here. We have three cases in Cuyahoga County and one in Stark County, and who knows what else is out there. Emily, what do we know about them? So the three cases in Cuyahoga County, there's a married couple who went on a cruise in the Nile in Africa and came back. Uh, there was another man who went to Washington, D.C., to the American Israel Public Affairs Committee conference uh, where there was found to be some cases and then took a bus back. All of them are in their mid-50s, and that's what we know in Cuyahoga County. So those schools were buzzing. Can you tell us which ones they were? Um, sure. Uh, there were there were a lot of them. Uh, Hawken was one of them. Um, there were definitely some in Beechwood. Um, Laurel, Shaker, University Schools, uh, Beachwood. Yeah, there were there were many that were exposed, but we don't know all of them. And the public health department didn't tell us. No, they didn't. Um, but they yeah, said we'll get to that in a minute. Jane, we have a fourth case in Stark County, and it's a scary one, right? Right. They uh, the governor announced that the the fourth case is what they call community spread. It's a 53-year-old guy from Stark County who did not travel anywhere, and they do not know that he was exposed to anyone. So this is like another step in this process where it's getting worse. So do we know anything about this person? Uh, really just that he's 53. I believe he's, he's in the hospital, and um, I don't know about underlying health conditions, but here's they're treating him. 
Here's the thing. Because you can have this virus for so long, you can be infecting people left and right for days. So not only the guy on the bus, but all those students and everyone they came into contact with after they got off the bus and everybody they came into contact with them. It's just this thing is spreading. In the Stark County case, it's really frightening because they have no idea where it came (laughs) from. And he got it on February 25th. So so for weeks now, this thing has probably been flourishing in Ohio and and, you know, we we don't know where. So Mike DeWine really took the reins on this thing this week, and he was kind of the image of calm leadership in his briefing. What are the big takeaways from what he's telling us? Well, he came out more aggressively uh, than he did at first in saying that people should just simply avoid these mass gatherings. And he... Uh, is drawing up an executive order because I think a lot of places they they want to have it in writing whatever businesses or sports teams or whatever but it didn't take long then for these closings to start happening it's probably about insurance right parades and if the governor says you can't do it you can get an insurance claim whereas if you just do it unilaterally maybe right right but you can see I mean as you said it's, it's the exponential nature of this. I mean, if I'm sick with this, I could infect multiple people, and then those multiple people could infect more multiple people, et cetera. So, so what's a mass gathering? We got five people in this little room. <laughs> Is, uh, he's not saying we can't do that, but at what point does it become a crowd? I don't know that he put a number on it, but I, I think he's saying, people, let's use common sense. I mean, even he's saying... If you have a, a meeting, you know, think twice about whether that meeting really needs to take place. He um, he seems very different than what we're seeing from Donald Trump in Washington. Trump is all over the place. The advice coming out of Washington is contradictory and not actually accurate. And and he stood up as as just a voice of, of reason and calm. Um, a pretty big difference, right? I, I would agree. He He really seems like the picture of... Empathy, calm, competence, and and he made it clear. He said, we want to tell the people the truth every single day. He's having these briefings every day, and uh, he's not he's not holding back on a lot of things. So we've heard from some people that they think the governor is overreacting, like we're canceling anything fun for the next two months because of a virus that will cause most of us to suffer only minor cold symptoms. So we're all likely to get exposed to it anyway. Did the governor address that issue? Well, he said, you know, this is difficult for people. It's difficult for him because he's a big sports fan. But, you know, people are still, a lot of people are still going about their daily business. So it's kind of hard for them to really accept that these drastic measures need to be taken. But he keeps trying to explain it, you know, how they really want to minimize the spread of this and these big events where people gather. It's just the fact. Yeah, and we can redefine fun. I mean, people could learn to play a musical <laughs> instrument or learn a language. They're going to be they home for be two months. Right. There's lots of stuff they could they could redirect themselves to. Uh, the idea that we're all going to get exposed to this is what the health director, Amy Acton, talked about, that 
that this was never something we were going to stop, that it was always how you slow it. And everybody's been talking about the two curves, that if you do nothing, you have a gigantic spike very quickly, masses of people infected, hospitals overrun. But if you follow all this advice, you, you much more have a much more general curve. The flow of patients through hospitals is manageable. There's been the history of what St. Louis did in the Spanish flu case where they were careful and they had the slow spike in Philadelphia, did everything wrong, and they had you know people dying, and it was all kind of bad. So, so it all sounded so simple in the beginning, how you avoid this. But Amy Acton really reinforced it, that it is the basic, simple stuff, right? Yeah, it's interesting. I, there were all these drastic measures that, that we know can help flatten out this curve, as you said, and, and allow us to ride it out without the hospitals being overwhelmed. But she really keeps repeating about, you know, taking personal responsibility, you know, washing your hands, For staying 20 home. Yeah, I mean, and I think we all kind of chuckled about this at first, but it's it's really important and it's really effective to wash your hands and not sneeze on people and stay home if you're sick. All all these things that are are all part of the package. The governor's talk on Tuesday had a political angle, Jane, in that he was making his points on a big day for presidential primaries when both Democratic candidates were going to be in Cleveland. And DeWine's talk had a really fast effect. It did. And and I should stress that, that he stressed he didn't want to trample on anyone's First Amendment rights. I don't think he was being political here, but the fact of the matter was that there were two big political rallies scheduled. And he made it clear that this was not a good idea. And the campaigns, which maybe up until that point had been like, well, we're watching the situation. It didn't take them long uh, after the governor made his pronouncement to to go ahead and cancel those rallies in Cleveland, Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. I know it was just a couple of rallies, but this really does kind of predict the future for this presidential campaign. Donald Trump in 2016 was the master of the political rally. If, if you can't have them, and he, he says he's going to keep having them, but even if he does, <laughs> will people show up? Uh, what does that do to, to presidential campaigning? How, how could it af- affect how we get the messaging? It, it's interesting. Seth Richardson, our politics reporter, had an opportunity to talk to Nina Turner, the former state senator who is a national co-chair of Bernie Sanders' campaign. She stayed in Cleveland after he left and went on to Vermont after the rally was canceled. And she was telling Seth, this is this is new terrain for us. We are really going to have to rethink how we're going to engage with voters. Everything from these rallies, uh, which are also important to, to Sanders, and uh, canvassing door to door and and she was worried about people showing up at the polls, and there are all kinds of, of implications here. But can you home. imagine Donald Trump not having his MAGA rallies during this no. campaign? I mean, how is he going to get all the big like cable news you know, attention? <laughs> I mean, all it's just... It's, it's, or will his followers say the virus be damned and show up anyway? But, but that makes it spread. I mean, the, is the right. president really right. going to do things for political gain that endanger the public health? 
We will have to we see. We can track the the curve for Republicans and Democrats. <laughs> oh my goodness. Based on, because they're not interacting much anyway. Uh, but let's talk about what else was canceled. All the fun stuff. The MAC tournament will go on without spectators inside Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse. Same with um, March Madness basketball. All the NCAA is not going to have uh, spectators. High school state tournaments are going on without spectators. Schools are canceling field trips. Playhouse Square right now says the shows are going to go on, but the Cleveland International Film Festival at Tower City was canceled. Some of it seems pretty arbitrary and really upsetting to a lot of people who were looking forward to watching Dayton, um, you know, in the NCAA or put a lot of work into planning. So what do you guys, I mean, you guys have done the bulk, Emily and Mary, of this cancellation. What's your take? Well, when you look at a a sort of faction that's really, you know, when you look at colleges specifically, they are taking no chances. They are getting the kids out of the dorms and canceling classes, in-person classes. Um, you know, we've seen many, many colleges throughout Northeast Ohio. So Case Western, Kent State, John Marshall, um, many of these schools are closing up shop, um, sort of following uh, Ohio State's lead, uh, which was the first to do so. What I, what I don't get, what seems a little bit arbitrary, is that the elementary and high schools are all open. And with what we talked about earlier, the kids on the bus being quarantined, the, the people in those schools are wigging out. Teachers are, are going to their principals saying, hey, you know, this is dangerous. Shouldn't we be working from home? Why do we think the elementary schools and the high schools are not closing? So I think this, this answer obviously is kind of speculative. Um, but College campuses have a lot of close contact. You have people living in very close contact in the dorms. That's a major factor. You have international students who are traveling. That's also a factor. You have people who aren't following hygiene practices. That's also a factor. People are gathering in these large lecture halls. Um, On top of that, schools are taking precautions with sanitizing and uh, isolating students with known cases of coronavirus. But also, if you look at high schools and elementary schools, there's a real financial ramification for attending these kids home Um, and that is a these schools aren't really set up for remote learning at all as opposed to some colleges and b parents have to be at home to take care of these kids and some people can't get the time off work right now um you know i have kids in elementary school and they're going to school as normal but everything extra has Mm -hmm. been canceled all the field trips the grandparents day the family game night they've said they're going to look at prom and graduation depending on on what's going on so i think they're figuring these kids are together they've been together we're going to keep just the kids and we're going to keep the outside influence out as much as we can for for now one other thing that the governor mentioned, and, and he said, this is one of the most difficult decisions we'll make, even though I sort of think it's inevitable given in what's happened Agreed, in Washington. Yeah. But he pointed out that a good chunk of healthcare workers have kids in school. So there are more ramifications. The other really horrible um, consequence of closing the schools is that there are lots of hungry children out there and they get meals in schools and i know there are various uh yeah we people working on how to fill these gaps but that's just um you know there are kids who are going to go hungry if they don't get their meals but the fears are causing parents to keep their kids home i know of one school district where they added a line to the absentee report that says fears of coronavirus because they had dozens of kids not show up at school because their parents were afraid they'd get the coronavirus how how does the university thing work so 
the, the kids, they're not canceling classes. It's not like they've done what the MBA did, where it's just done for the year. They're, they're still going to learn. How does that work? Yeah, they're going to uh, set up online programs. Now, a lot of these schools are not set up to fully have online programs, um, but some of them have hybrid programs. Some of them already have half in-person, half online programs. So they're going to more shift towards that. And I think it's going to be different for different disciplines, how you might do it in a, uh, you know, chemistry class where, you know, kids do experiments and in-person learning is really important, maybe different than an English class where, you know, yeah, classroom discussion is interesting and great, but, you know, everybody can read the book and sort of, you know. Will they do, will for the discussion part, will they do like an online chat? I mean, this isn't, this isn't going to be like a Skype screen with 50 windows, right? So sometimes it depends on what software the the university already uses. So there's a really well-known software called Blackboard that's mainly an assignment interface where you go in and you click on the assignment and pull it up and complete it and submit it. Uh, you can also do forums on that site. Um, I but just, it's not video. You're not looking at some somebody talking schools, to schools, depending on how much money they have and what they have available, um, it, it really depends on the school's infrastructure, could move to conferencing like zoom which is a a pretty common conferencing app but it really really depends on what they have and what their students have in terms of internet access i mean i'm just thinking about when i was in college and i remember doing a class where you could see the instructor and there was like a group chat on the bottom so yeah so like your, your instructor was talking to you and it was almost like you almost like a Facebook Live kind of where your instructor's talking and you can jump into the chat and like it's like you're raising your hand. The teacher can go, yes, you know, Laura, that's a great point, you know, and oh, you know, so-and-so just jumped on Laura's point, you know, because it's like a chat. So it's it's almost what I remember is the teacher would kind of read the student's comments and, and facilitate conversation that way. Um, How did it compare to being in the classroom? I mean, it... it you know, we're all digitally focused and I feel like kids are very used to having conversations and text messages and communicating via, um, you know, text. Um, but yeah, like, but let me ask you this. How many screens did you have open when you're doing that? Would you be watching YouTube videos? Did you have something on in the background? Was TV uh, streaming? Chris, I was a really good student. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that was not me. I don't know what my counterparts were doing, but, um, I was very focused on classroom learning. Thank you very much. <laughs> I maybe not as much, Um, (laughs) but uh, it's funny because uh, you see a lot of people talking in online Facebook groups about this and they're just completely, some of them are celebrating, but some of them are like, "I, I paid for this. So we'll see how the universities work that out. But also, if you look at the different announcements from all these universities, they are extending spring breaks. They are taking days off class so that they can work with their faculty, but that's also a major learning curve. How do they know you're not cheating on a test? If, you, if it's, uh, unless you're writing essays or something, but so, how do you know? So there's software, so what I remember is there's software that blocks everything off your computer, like even solitaire. So if you wanted to, <laughs> okay, so this goes back to my high school days. I, I've had a laptop since I was like 14 in school. So and I'm, I'm 29, so I'm not like, you know, 20. Um, but but yeah, they they have. If you log in, it like blocks everything. You know, what's to stop you from bringing in, you know, a physicist to take your physics test? Uh, 
you know, I wasn't in physics, so I wouldn't know. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. A lot of these uh, uh, deadlines are not through exams. Um, So we'll see. Exams are typically in May. So if this continues, that might be a whole other bag of cats. You could also, I mean, focus on papers, right? Because like if you write a paper, I mean. They have all sorts of tools to check. Yeah. So, I mean, it could be, you know papers more papers all right so let's go back to the kaga county board of health it it did something we couldn't understand it refused to say which schools were affected by the guy who rode the bus to with the kids to the apac conference and we thought that publicizing the school names would help parents better understand if their kids had been exposed if they were friends if they played in sports but they refused So uh, we spoke to both the Board of Health and uh, the Jewish Federation of Cleveland, both which chose not to uh, reveal which schools were involved. And that was a matter of privacy for them. They want to reduce stigma. And on top of that, uh, it's a delicate topic. So so what the argument is, I'll, I'll just tell you what I think the argument is. The argument is when you start drilling down into school districts, right, and everybody knows that those two kids who missed school, you know, to go to this Washington, D.C. conference. It's not a secret that they were at this conference, right? Everybody knows that it's those two kids. They already do. Everybody knows it already. Everybody in that district knows it's those kids. What what you're depriving people of here is if my kid plays with a kid from that school, I don't know because I don't know what school it is. Everybody in the district knows. If you think they're not buzzing with, hey, that's John Smith and Charlie, you're crazy. They know. I mean, my wife is a teacher. Everybody knows. The only people who don't know are the people who need to know, and that's the public health department's job. I don't care about the the um, the center. They're, they don't respond to the public. They're not funded by taxpayer dollars. The health department is. This is just, this is dumb. It's like the early days of the coronavirus where the state were saying, we're not going to say where the test is done. They're claiming that if we said what county it is, only one person in the county went to China, everyone would know who it is. It, it's pretty much a bogus argument. The job is to protect the public. And the more information you get, the more you you counter that anxiety. I don't think we have arguments against that, <laughs> not in this room. It does seem like they're always bending over backwards a little too far toward the privacy and, and uh, away from the public interest. I don't know. I think there's also an argument that HIPAA might cover some of this, and these people are really, really afraid of violating HIPAA. Yeah, it's not a HIPAA violation. <laughs> the <laughs> other thing that the county Hor- county health board did is it made no effort to find people who were on that bus after the trip. The next load of bus drivers, bus riders, could have been exposed to the coronavirus, but the county health board said that was out of their purview. But hey, they started a daily briefing to keep us informed. It's very useful. I'm sure. <laughs> Some news will come out of it sometime. Yeah, maybe in a week, three weeks. (laughs) Okay, so let's talk a bit about the virus itself. We keep learning more about it. There was a Bloomberg story that said nearly half of the first 750 people to die in China had high blood pressure. That's pretty scary. Emily, you did some reporting to see whether we could get our blood, all we should all get our blood pressure checked and regulated before we contract the coronavirus. So what's funny is when you speak to a bunch of cardiologists and doctors, they all say, yes, you should be getting your blood pressure checked, but no, you don't need to panic and go out and get it checked. Uh, basically, the idea here is that this information is slow 
slowly streaming out. Um, there are initial studies and there are a lot of anecdotal stories being told. Um, a top doctor in China was the person who made the comments for the Bloomberg story, and those observations are important. However, there's a lot of considerations to take into account with hypertension or high blood pressure, which affects about one third of the adult population of the United States. So in this case, they can uh, high blood pressure is often linked to other uh, cardiovascular complications um, and other underlying conditions. So yes, it's important to know what your blood pressure is and whether or not you need to be treating it. But these situations, both the study that we referenced in the story and the doctor did not reference whether or not these cases were controlled blood pressure or uncontrolled blood pressure. Yeah. That was a, that was one of the big questions everybody had. Oh wait, if I have high blood pressure and it's treated, does it reduce my risk? And I, you know, it's so new. We'll eventually find out. We also wondered about how allergies might affect the experience with the virus. I have spring allergies. I wondered, uh, and Mary answered all these questions. It, it's one thing is it, allergies spark your immune system. So does that mean you're fighting off the virus? Um, they also cause you to have really watery eyes and irritated nose. Does that make you more vulnerable? And Mary, I was delighted to see your story had all the answers. So do tell. Chris Quinn, when you ask me to, to, to write an allergy <laughs> story, I will deliver every year, every spring, every <laughs> fall. Um, <laughs> um, so what I can tell you is I learned a lot. So um, and allergies for people who don't know, it's an immune reaction. It's your immune system overreacting to an allergen, say like ragweed or tree pollen. So what we know, what doctors know is the um, immune cells that fight infection are different than the immune cells that um, attack allergies. And so what that means is when you are a person who has allergies, you have an overreactive um, allergy cell um, uh, sort of dynamic. So your allergy cells are you know, freak out over any sort of allergen, but your um, infection fighting cells aren't really affected. So it doesn't help you at all. So <laughs> no, it doesn't affect you at all. But what it, it, yeah, I know, unfortunately. So you do have a revved up immune system when it comes to allergens, but your immune system is revved up towards allergens, not towards infection fighting. Now that doesn't mean that your infection fighting cells are worse off. It just means that they're sort of baseline, whereas your allergy fighting cells are sort of in overdrive. But my raw eyes and my raw nose and my itch, rubbing so the itch. That could be, eyes. that could be a problem for you because if you think about it, if you have allergies, you're constantly wanting to touch your eyes. Your eyes are itchy and watery and red. Your nose is runny and you want to blow your nose all the time. So you are touching your face or more tempted to touch your face than the average person just because, you know, you're so miserable. The other thing to note is, and I think this is kind of common sense, but if you are having allergies and then you get a respiratory infection on top of that. So if you have allergy symptoms and then you get a cold, you're going to feel worse, right? So... Allergy sufferers could be more vulnerable, I guess, to picking up this infection just because they're touching their face so much. And one of the ways coronavirus spreads is if you touch an infective surface like a doorknob or, you know, a stair railing and then touch your face, you could get it. So and I could, can also spread it then. If I have watery eyes and I get the coronavirus and I'm touching stuff, 
other people could yeah, get it. Yeah, yeah. And the thing about the coronavirus is, right, the incubation period is longer. So you could be walking around. Infecting everybody. And infecting everybody, just thinking you have seasonal allergies. When you find out a week later, you might have the coronavirus. So it's not great news for you. So two lessons. Take your allergy medicines so that you reduce those symptoms and get your high blood pressure the, checked. The one thing I will say is that um, allergens say they haven't seen the big. They always know when allergy season starts, they get a ton, a ton of calls. They think that's maybe two weeks away yeah so we do have some time the first very early alert of a low thing came out a little while ago all right let's take a quick break you're listening to this week in the cle okay so cleveland cuyahoga county and the state have declared states of emergency over the coronavirus what does that even mean jane let's go at the state level what does it mean for ohio well, it, it's probably not quite as dramatic as it sounds. It, it's going to allow the state to purchase medical equipment and other things it needs to address this emergency without having to go out for competitive bids. It orders the health department to issue guidelines for testing and treatment, and uh, it activates their emergency operations center, things like that. So what about the county and the city, uh, Emily? Uh, we're kind of looking at some of the same thing. Uh, what the state's response would be would be a little bit more similar to what the county would be. Uh, the county code would now allow the executive to make supply purchases up to five hundred thousand uh, dollars. Now uh, the county executive has to write a report declaring the nature of the emergency, which should give us some more information on how they plan to respond. But it means that. Uh, Custodians are working overtime to sanitize buildings, and it just really, uh, in both the city and the county case, gives uh, both the county executive and the mayor more power um, in terms of what they can do and what they can purchase uh, to help fight this situation. Okay. One of the most disgusting stories to come out of this involves casinos. Chris got a message through his subtext account asking about slot machines. And if you don't know about the subtext account, every day Chris sends a message or two about what we're talking about in the newsroom. And people have a direct line back to him about their thoughts. So we're getting a lot of stories out of it. You can subscribe by free, subscribe for free by sending a text to Chris at 216-868-4802. Anyway, Jane... Rich Exner called the casinos and racinos to see how they were sanitizing slot machines, poker chips, cash, etc. Many, many people handle those things. And what do you learn? Well, it's funny. You know, we got the idea to to call them and because we just thought, oh, there's so many people touching all this stuff, you know. And they, they gave us a very vague answer. Uh, this was recently. We are being very vigilant and we uphold the highest health and safety standards. But they... they wouldn't really tell us specifically what they were doing, yeah, which, of course... They weren't doing anything. <laughs> it was clear. They weren't doing anything, which is really kind of gross, even aside from <laughs> coronavirus. You should sit at the casino, I guess, with a bag of bottles of hand I sanitizer. I don't do that. So, so they... they cas- <laughs> Just generally. <laughs> casinos appeared to be about the worst places to go outside of cruise ships. Um, but then, then Rich asked the question about their buffets, and they sent him a long answer days later about what they're doing with their poker chips. So what are they doing? Yeah, I guess in addition to cleaning the floors every single day, they are disinfecting the, the chips and the machines and the table games uh, with some super duper, you know, disinfectant that Once they spray. Uh, 
Well, I at least once a day, and and so they say this this disinfectant is highly effective. All right, I just want to point out that's Cleveland.com gets action. They weren't cleaning them before; <laughs> they're cleaning them now. So we've no reduced comment. the coronavirus risk for for uh, gamblers. Okay, new topic. Let's talk about testing. A lot of well, hold on, hold on. They're also doing one other thing. They're no longer serving food, right? Oh, well, actually, that's in Vegas where MGM Resorts has stopped uh, those buffets. You know where everybody can. Do we still have the buffet here? Then we do. As of mm, Wednesday, Rich went out there, and the local one. They said they're they're watching the situation. They're they're in touch or watching the CDC's guidelines, uh, maybe by the time people listen to this podcast, they they will have <laughs> did, shut that down. Did, but did Rich have anything to eat? N- no, I don't think okay. so. <laughs> <laughs> and he's the one that does all the food inspections. He knows what he's talking about. All right, so new topic, back to that testing. A lot of those subtexters are asking about testing. The details seem pretty confusing. Um, Jane, one of your reporters, Laura Hancock, has been doing a lot of reporting on this. Can you help us understand how testing works and how the kits work? Does everyone suspected of having coronavirus have to do something with a test kit? Well, it, uh, they... It's I'm this is my disclaimer where I'm not a scientist, okay, but they you just play one here. <laughs> these kits allow them to test hundreds of people. It's not like a kit, you know, for, for one person. So like any kit could, you know, test maybe four four hundred people or more. So how does this work? Is it a is it is it a swab of your cheek and your nose like like a DNA test or is it a blood test or is it a spit test? I mean, what what is being sampled? Okay, once again, scientific disclaimer, but they they take samples from your nose and throat, and then they um, then they try to match the genetic code with the code of the coronavirus, and they do that with. Uh, I think they call them reagents. You know, they do these chemical reactions that that allow them to see whether the genetic codes match. And that's like the super simplified explanation, I think. All right. So is the, go ahead, Mary. Oh, well, I have a question. So I've read in some states they're um, they're getting private laboratories and universities are making their own tests. Um, and I was just wondering, I know that I read the Ohio Department of Health is testing the worst cases, the, the cases that are most um, likely to be serious. Are there any private labs here in Ohio that are gearing up to test, you know, people who have more mild symptoms? There are a couple of private labs operating, and it's my understanding that hospitals are also starting to do their own testing. Yeah, the Cleveland Clinic and UH are doing it. Do you think the lack of test kits has caused us to underestimate the number of sick people? Or do you get the idea that state officials feel limited how many people they can test, or is that changing? Right now, I don't think we officially have a lack of test kits, but the answer to that is, Yes, I think there are lots of people walking around with this that we don't know about, and it's not necessarily the fault of the health department for not testing them. A lot of people probably don't even know they they have it. Yeah, I mean, that's clear from the Stark County case. Clearly, there are people there that have it because he had to get it from somewhere, uh, and we just don't know about it. One of the interesting aspects of this is how the nation is dealing with the recommendation that employees stay home from work. All of a sudden... Uh, more more so than ever in history, people are going to be working from home. 
Uh, Joey Morona has been working for home for a year for Cleveland.com, and he put together 10 tips about working from home. What do you guys think the best ones are? Um, I think sticking with your morning routine is a really good one. Um, I've worked from home on and off for years here. We kind of have a flexible work environment here. And just because you're working from home doesn't mean you shouldn't, you know, have a routine. Shower. Shower. <laughs> you know, maybe put on some real clothes. Make sure you have breakfast. The other idea that I thought was really good is, you know, sort of set a, a schedule. So, you know, you're going to work on this assignment between, you know, 9 and 11 and then, you know, maybe take a lunch break. So, just sort of regulate yourself, I think, is really the the idea. Because when you're at home, you know, there are distractions. There's, you know, if you have kids who happen to be home from school, they're, they're doing their thing. Um, there's like laundry. There's so many things that you can get caught up in. And so just setting aside time and space, so maybe designating a workspace where it's not home time, it's work time, might be a good idea. Yeah, that's what I really took away from Joey's story. And one of the most interesting things I put on there, especially knowing um, one of the most interesting things Joey put on there, uh, knowing that he's worked from home for so long, is don't get paranoid. Don't think that you're not pulling your weight because you're at home. Don't uh, get nervous or anxious that your bosses think that because you're not in the office that you're not doing your job. But it kind of loops back to those recommendations. Set yourself a list of goals. Um, and check them off as you do them. You can share that with your bosses as well. Uh, so it, it's a great idea. It's a great story. What happens if if all these people work from home for the first time ever? Their productivity doesn't go down. That they're that we find that they get as much work done. They might get more done because they're not commuting. Do, do do we think a movement begins in this country to to remove the workforce from workplaces? I mean, is college going to change? Because you don't need a campus if you can teach people remotely. Well, I think there are benefits to working in a group environment. I know certainly in the newsroom, I learn so much from my colleagues and their, you know, the conversations they're having and just being able to walk over to somebody and say, I'm thinking about this story. I'm trying to figure out how to map it out. Do you have any thoughts? I mean, those sorts of conversations are valuable. Similarly, in college, I mean, college is so much more than going to class. Um, college is learning how to be a grown-up, learning how to be independent, learning how to have relationships with people, you know, your professors, your friends, your yeah, you, basically everyone. So I don't think that college in the traditional sense is going to go away. I do think... But, but, but hold on, it's prohibitively expensive. I mean, my, most of your peers, you're both young, most of your peers have debt loads that, that none of us who are older could imagine having in our 20s. Is this a way of making college cheaper? So I think what's actually going to happen, uh, first of all, it's expensive to set up this infrastructure. It's We'll probably see colleges spending a lot more money and spending a lot more resources to make sure they can set up this infrastructure. It's probably the reason people haven't gone like mainly online already. Colleges have been working for years to try and move towards having more online options, both for you know efficiency, more class options, and uh, being able able to appeal to those non-traditional students. I don't think that this will move colleges fully online or really alleviate the cost all that much. What I do think it will do is allow colleges to assess their options, uh, be a little bit smarter. It's the same way in workplaces. They can assess their options with remote work and as well as sick leave and be a little bit smarter. 
Uh, well, as news people, we are fortunate that we can do our jobs remotely. A lot of people can't. So for them, the advice remains the social distancing, hand washing, et cetera. Do we get to a point where manufacturing shuts down in this country and people go unpaid? I know there was an effort in the U.S. Le- legislature to secure sick time for workers. Has DeWine said anything about providing unemployment to people temporarily left without paychecks? He hasn't been real specific about this during his briefings. I believe some lawmakers have written to him about their concerns. The The fact is, uh, th- the rules for unemployment are, if you are cannot or you are become unemployed or lose your job through no fault of your own you can qualify for unemployment but so you got to believe like if your factory shuts down or if you're told to stay home you're laid off then you can qualify however if you stay home because you're sick you know you're not going to qualify for unemployment or if you if you're asymptomatic and you decide to self quarantine you're not likely to get benefits but that's why people like Sherrod Brown are trying to uh, get a federal bill passed that that would guarantee workers you know emergency sick leave or immediate sick leave in these kinds of cases. Because if you go to work because you you can't afford to be without the paycheck you spread the exactly exactly all right we're bouncing around a lot here but this virus is affecting so many sectors that we have to Next up is travel. We're in the season of spring break, and we're hearing that a lot of people have canceled spring break trips. Anyone planning to go to Italy, for example, and, and now pretty much all of Europe would have no choice. Mary, you wrote about this. What did you learn? So I really think it kind of depends on what age group you're in. If you're talking to millennials or younger people, most of the people that I've talked to plan on going. Um, I talked to a, a travel agent in Cleveland who said she just had a group of girls go to Puna Cana. Is that how you pronounce it? In Mexico. Anyway, they're going to a beach in Mexico and nothing was getting in the way of them going on that trip. Um, older people, I think, are sort of reassessing their travel plans, as the CDC says. Um, What's the breakdown for older? <laughs> Emily, so, Emily, do you have I, a thought on that? I'm, I'm going to go with 65 plus because okay. that's when you can get Social Security. So that's like a definitive age that is fact-based. Um, but but yeah, I think a lot of people are reassessing travel plans. I have, uh, you know, a trip planned to Florida next week. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, my worry is not really getting the coronavirus. My worry is, you know, something dramatic happens and they shut down planes um, in the U.S. and then I, I can't get back. So I think a lot of people are weighing their options. I, you know, I have a friend who is going to Japan on Friday and has no plans to cancel her trip. So I really think it's a personal choice. And I think it, a lot of it has to do with how much you've been reading about the coronavirus and how aware you are of the coronavirus's potential impact versus people who are just sort of waking up to this. So so you'll go on your trip. If you had a ticket to Playhouse Square, would you go? Yeah, I would go. I mean, my, I'd probably. Tonight. <laughs> I would probably. I'm, unless they cancel, I, I plan on going. I mean, I, you know, I'd probably panic about it a little bit, but then I'd, I'd probably eventually go. But it's a personal decision. And I think it really has to depend on, you know, whether or not you're a healthy adult and then what the public recommendations are. If Mike DeWine says, don't go to a play, I probably wouldn't go. Well, but he said, don't go to I places was where say, there are crowds. Are you listening My, to him? Yeah, are you he listening? said, don't go where the crowds. Well, I'm glad, though, that I had considered a cruise for my kids' spring break. I'm also glad that we went to Disney last month before this 
all all blew up. But what about summer vacations? I know that's a little bit further away, but are they getting canceled? Are people opting for vacations where they can drive and change their plans at a whim? A lot of people are sort of taking a wait and see attitude, especially with trips planned that would require flight travel. Um, the one thing that people, people are very afraid of planes, right? And the CDC says that actually the way that the air is filtered and circulated through airplanes, it's a lot harder for viruses to spread. I mean, take that, you know, how you want to. Yeah, I mean, I've, <laughs> I've certainly gotten a cold after getting on an airplane before, but um, I think a lot of people with summer vacations are sort of taking a wait and see approach. And yeah, I mean, car tri- travel is appealing because you are in a car you know, and you're not you have like a blockade. Yeah, you're in your little, you know, until you stop at a module. <laughs> yeah, a public restroom or and there. Yeah. So I don't know. I think it's a personal decision. I think it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I think a lot of people, like I said, are just like waking up to the fact that this could really impact their lives. A lot of people don't want to believe it. Uh, Mary, since you're not listening to the governor at all, <laughs> he might have to get tough on you. And in fact, uh, the state does have certain powers. You looked into this to lock yeah. us down travel-wise. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Oh, they can lock us down in a lot of different ways. So um, I learned all about quarantine laws. And um, six weeks ago, you looked at what was happening in China with the government shutting down everything and people having to stay home and businesses closing and, you know, severely limiting, you know, even somebody's movement within their city going about their daily lives. Um, That is legal here in Ohio. But what it's important to note is that they have that power and it's sort of a last resort power. And the difference between here and China, which is an authoritarian government, obviously, is um, public health leaders and and officials would have to basically balance people's rights with the public health. And so they would have to put the least restrictive measures, you know, the least restrictive measures necessary in order to protect the public health. So quarantine doesn't necessarily mean we're shutting down Cleveland, you can't move. It could mean we're shutting down uh, schools in Rocky River after an outbreak. It could mean, you know, three different east side communities um you know they're asking people to stay home from work if there's an outbreak so there there are a lot of different options but yeah it is legal it is something that could happen and it is something that we're seeing play out in a democracy in italy which is being ravaged right now by the virus um everything's shut down except grocery stores and pharmacies people cannot move so it is something that could happen here the uh the way this could affect they travel as if people vote with their feet. If they stop flying, which they are, uh, the airlines are just going to have to start shutting down flights, which could be one of the big economic impacts of this entire industry could, could end up closing down. And it's a little bit frightening to see every other day, including the day we're recording this podcast, the stock market is tumbling. They shut down trading this morning. Before we end the coronavirus discussion, let's try to remove all confusion about one of the most confusing elements we've dealt with, and that is masks, which is even hard to say. We keep confusing masks and masks when I talk to Emily. But when this thing started, we were all told masks don't work. That made no sense because doctors and nurses wear them. Finally, health officials said they didn't want people to buy masks because a shortage would hurt medical professionals treating the ill. So do they work, but mainly we don't need them, Mary? Okay, so there are two different kind of masks. There are the surgical masks that you see everybody wearing outside. 
and they um, are very good at keeping your germs in. So if you're a sick person, it makes sense for you to wear them when you're out in public, but they're not very good at keeping other people's germs out because they can't filter the viruses. Um, There's another kind of mask, it's called an N95, that can filter out viruses. they but you have to wear it right like a lot of people aren't wearing them correctly like you can't take it off your face when you're talking to somebody it has to cover your mouth and your nose completely in order for it to work um they have said healthcare workers have said like take all the surgical masks you want you can use those that's fine but keep the n95s for the healthcare workers because we're going to be in a really really bad place if healthcare workers can't get these supplies that they need to take care of health, uh, sick patients Um, they're going to get sick, and then we're all going to be in a really bad place. Doctors and nurses are on the front line of this battle, so they really need these things, and people should stop buying or hoarding them. All of the other tactics are the best ones. Hand-washing, sanitation, social distancing, avoiding crowds. Those are the things they keep telling us to do. Right. So that does it at last for this part of our coronavirus conversation. Thank you all for participating. Thank you. In a moment, we'll have one last coronavirus discussion, but this one is way more fun. If you're stocking up on food in case you get housebound, we have a team that tasted a lot of frozen pizza to find the best. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Yadi Rodriguez and Brenda Kane, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. We've all heard the advice that we should have a two-week supply of food and household necessities in case we get quarantined or need to avoid seeing people. My friends keep texting me that Target sold out of bleach and toilet paper. So far, not frozen pizza. Frozen food makes total sense in this case, and now you know which the best frozen pizzas are. Well, we know about 130 of them. That's a lot of pizza. So for the last few months, we've been ranking and tasting a variety of frozen pizzas that you can find at your local grocery stores. Um, We did 130 and ranked them from worst to best. And you had to spread this over months because, well, who can eat that many pizzas in a short (laughs) amount of time? You did share them liberally with your newsroom colleagues, I might add. How did you cook them? Well, we found this nifty little device online. It's called the Pizzazz plus pizza oven and it wrote it's got a little rotating dish a uh, uh, heating element top and bottom and we threw them in there and cooked them in the office so it's like a little heated pizza turntable exactly it is and it, we found it for under 50 dollars, and we cooked over 130 pizzas on it with no problem and it's still going so yeah good investment and if you want to actually see how the thing works we've got a time-lapsed um, photography thing in our I know people are buying them because they watch what you did with it and they're going on Amazon and buying it. Okay, my kids love frozen pizza. I asked my son once if he wanted a frozen pizza and he goes, well, can we have it cooked? But (laughs) So I do cook them before I give them to them. So the big question is, which is best? Wait, 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 wait. Let's do a countdown. Let's start with number five on your list. And what, why did you like it? All right, number five was against the grains, nut-free pesto. This is a gluten-free pizza. Um, you, it, you look at me when you I, say that. I can eat it, yeah. <laughs> An option for some of you. Um, it did have, for me personally, one of the best gluten-free crusts that I that I tried. Um, it was flaky. It was puffy. It had nice color. It was um, light. It wasn't heavy. Lots and lots of cheese, pesto in every single bite. Um, so we found it at Heinen's for ten ninety nine. All right, number four. Number four was um, from Walmart. It's the Great Value Beer, Cheese, Sauce, and Sausage Pizza. 
Um, beer cheese. Beer cheese, okay. which was surprisingly good. It's very smooth and creamy and mellow flavor. The sausage had a really nice kick to it, so you got smooth and creamy and you know a little bit of spice. The only disappointment with this pizza was the box said it was a pretzel crust. Crust was very good, but it was definitely not pretzel. But What's st- the cost on that one? Still number four, though. Yeah. Um, it I was just- five ninety eight. And in addition to the beer cheese, it did have mozzarella and cheddar. So you had a good variety of different kinds of cheeses, which made it unique. Sounds like gourmet pizza you're describing instead of frozen pizza. Number uh, Walmart brand. (laughs) Walmart brand. (laughs) Number three. Um, This one actually is probably going to be in in short supply right now. It's the Mandia garlic and cheese. Um, It is made in Italy. So... Um, but if you can find it, you'll find it at Nature's Oasis in Shaker Heights. Um, but it was really good. The The crust seemed to have a lot of air pockets in it, so it made it really light and crispy. And there was no sauce. It was a thin layer of olive oil, oh. but a ton of cheese. So okay. it was really light and delicious. What's the cost on that one? That one was seven ninety nine. Okay. But this one can only be found at Nature Oasis. Okay, so you got to go out there. You have to go out there. Okay, number two. Uh, Number two was Outsiders Three Cheese Detroit Style. My personal favorite. Um, You had caramelized cheese on it that fell over on the sides when you cooked it. Um, It was a rectangular-shaped pizza. Um, It was um, thick crust but not heavy. It was buttery. It was... uh, yeah, cheesy pizza that truly uh, lived to its name of being a three cheese. Okay. And, and that co- was um, eight ninety nine, and you can find those um, at Target, Giant Eagle, Heinen's. Okay. And now, drum roll, please. What is the best frozen pizza, and where'd you get it? Well, this is another Outsiders Pizza Company brand. Um, this one was the jalapeno, and um, it had and bacon. Who doesn't love bacon, right? right? But it had um, really thick cut bacon on it and tons of jalapenos. So you got the savory plus the the nice kick at the end. Um, I would like to mention that we found out that these are locally made pizzas. So we didn't know that when we were taste testing and ranking. So um, they're they're Cleveland's own. How much? Eight ninety nine. All right, so those are the best. I imagine you had some that were pretty dang awful. How would you describe the taste and texture of the pizzas that came in last? Well, they didn't have taste. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll give you, I, I wrote down a couple of from our notes that we had and just some of the bad ones. Uh, tasted like tree bark. Uh, <laughs> tastes like glue. Generic. No taste really weird from the moment that you unwrapped it you knew it wasn't going to be good so like it tastes like the cardboard that comes at the Just, bottom I of think the frozen I, and pizza some of them the cardboard might have been a little better <laughs> yeah <laughs> all right when it comes to pizza most people want fresh do you have any frozen pizzas that you that rivaled a fresh made pie um there were a few that stood out to me devour makes a, a really good uh creamy garlic supreme pizza um the donatos stand pretty uh compare well to what you would get in delivery um myers also has a really good store brand pizzas um and but but if you have a choice if, if, between getting a fresh pizza right out of the oven at a pizzeria that you respect 
and the best of the frozen pizzas, what are you going with? I personally, I would go with the Devour. That one really stood out to me. Um, ta- I, I do have to say though, Table Eighty Seven, they have um, a margarita pizza, but it only comes in a slice. Um, but it's vacuum packed in there, and it is really good. If they made that into a whole pie. You'd be, yeah. all you, you'd be all about it. It was very much like a pizza slice you would get at a New York City pizzeria. Oh, wow. All right, so are you off pizza for a while? What's next up for your taste test? Well, I'm off pizza. Absolutely off pizza. <laughs> um, you know, we're going to be uh, looking at fast food breakfast options. You know, it seems to be all the rage with Wendy's jumping into the bandwagon now. Um, we're also going to look at uh, some Starkist tuna creations. Um, their tuna creations line has 17 different flavors to choose from anywhere from ranch to sriracha and all under two dollars so let's see how those we'll be uh, seeing that around the how office those taste, right <laughs> i can't wait for tuna fish to be left out in the office that one will be on yadi i have a seafood allergy so. okay well the entire pizza rundown is online check it out at cleveland.com and thank you yadi and brenda for sharing thank you all right thank you we need to get out of here before this more coronavirus news breaks, Laura, and makes this podcast outdated. Good episode? Yeah, I think we've all been, you know, admired in this uh, coronavirus for so long, but it's nice to kind of break down the most important things we've gleaned from our months of reporting. Big thanks for me and Laura to Jane Cahoon, Emily Bamforth, Mary Kilpatrick, Yadi Rodriguez, and Brenda Kane, and to you for taking the time to listen. This week in the CLE, we'll be back next week.